Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about, in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive, and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans. Like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. As I suspected on Friday's podcast, the 400-point reversal that saw the Dow move from down over 300 points to up 100 points on the close was in fact reversed today, and the Dow Jones actually closed below the Friday low, which is a huge negative technically for the index. The Dow was down 617 points. That's about 2.4%. But the real carnage was in the NASDAQ. That was down 3.4%. Russell 2000 also down better than 3%, 3 3.2%, showing that the domestically focused stocks are actually getting hit harder than the uh, multinationals. More trouble again for the recent IPOs, in particular the ride-hailing companies. Uh, Lyft down again another 5.8 percent off the lows of the day uh, the lowest 47.17 we close at 48.15 but down another 5.8 percent the uber disaster continues in uber uber was down almost 11 percent today at one point it was down 12 percent the low was 36.08 we closed at 37.10 remember we came uh, public friday This is only the second trading day. Uber came public at 45, uh, now at 37. And as I said again on last week's podcast, these types of stocks are going to get particularly hit hard if the market carnage continues, which I think it will. I think the bear market rally is over. I've been saying that. Long live the bear market. This bear market rally is dead. We are going a lot lower. The catalyst today 
was also something that I was pointing out on my podcast last week, and that was the fact that we are not going to get a deal with China. And I've been saying for a long time that even if we got a deal, it was going to be a I know a buy the rumor, sell the fact. But I also said it was becoming obvious that Trump had so overpromised about a great deal that it was almost impossible to have a deal without disappointing the markets. And so I think Trump made a calculated decision that no deal is better than a deal that disappoints, especially since he had already goosed the market up to new highs. So even if we sold off, Trump could say, well, this is some short-term pain. It's necessary for the long-term gain. And it may, in fact, be the catalyst that causes the Fed to cut interest rates and launch QE, which is what Trump wants. Now, of course, if the markets really understood the gravity of the situation, we would not be down 600 points. We'd be down 6,000 points. You know, gold was up today, but what, 12, 13 bucks? It couldn't even really gain any traction above 1,300. We were mainly trading around 1,299, so still a lot of resistance. But gold would be up hundreds of dollars an ounce if people really perceived uh, reality or understood what this means. Because not only did we get an escalation of the, the the tweet rhetoric right coming out from Trump earlier in the weekend. But on Sunday, the president actually tweeted out that the reason the Chinese were backing away from the deal was because they were being beaten so badly in the negotiations. And because he had beaten the Chinese so badly, they didn't want to do the deal. Now, think about that for a minute. Trump is supposed to be this great negotiator. Well, if you're negotiating a great deal where you're really beating up the other party, The last thing that you would want to do is point that out. I mean, the only way you're going to close like a one-sided deal is if you can fool the other side into not realizing that they're getting screwed. So if you're really beating the Chinese badly, you got to make them think they're winning. Remember, a deal has to be a win-win, right? Both sides have to think they're winning in order to close a deal. I mean, doesn't Donald Trump know this? This is negotiation 101. I mean, he said, elect me. I'm such a great negotiator. And now he's blowing the entire deal. Supposedly, he was beating the pants off the Chinese. And instead of closing the deal, he's basically blowing the deal by letting them know how badly he was beating them. But now, I think yesterday, the Chinese have now tweeted back. They have responded in kind. They have announced countermeasures. They are going to be imposing tariffs of their own. Uh, They are talking about not buying any U.S. agricultural products, not buying any planes uh, from Boeing. Uh, They're talking about potentially selling U.S. treasuries and imposing tariffs domestically on American goods. And you know what Donald Trump's response was? Bring it on. He wants the war. He's confident we are going to win. In fact, one of the tweets uh, that the president put out early this morning was that the reason that we had such good GDP in the first quarter, the reason we had this surprising good GDP was because of the tariffs. I mean, how delusional do you have to be to believe that the tariffs are driving GDP? They're not. I mean, in a way, they might have influenced it because they influenced the timing of some imports and some inventory builds. But that's it. In fact, the inventory build and some other issues like a temporary uh, drop in the deflator, you had some one-off factors that were actually masking 
what was a weakening U.S. economy. And by the second quarter, those factors will not be there and the weakening economy will be laid bare for everybody to see. And it is going to be a lot weaker because America is not going to win this trade war. We are going to lose this war and we are going to lose it badly. And the winner is going to be China. And the reason that China is going to win is because they are the ones that have been losing from this trade relationship. And the president and pretty much nobody else in this country seems to understand this, at least nobody else that gets any airtime with the mainstream media. But we have been riding on a Chinese gravy train. We have been relying on China. I have said this. I have written about this in my books. We have been relying on China for capital, and we have been relying on China for consumer goods. They supply us with the savings that we don't have, and they allow us to import the products that we don't consume. And I'm going to expand on that a little bit more, but first I want to get into what the Chinese are are threatening, right, that they're going to do. So first of all, they're talking about not buying U.S. agriculture. Now, this is a huge problem for U.S. farmers that sell a lot of their products to the Chinese, right? And so they're saying we're not going to buy American grains, soybeans or wheat or corn, whatever they're buying. Now, is this a big deal for the Chinese? Probably not. I mean, there are a lot of other countries that grow this stuff. I mean, anybody can grow crops, right? There's nothing special about growing soybeans, right? I mean, the Brazilians have plenty of crops. There's crops all over the place. You know, maybe the Chinese will end up paying a little bit more, Maybe, maybe not. Depends on what happens to the value of their currency. If the value of their currency goes up, which I think it will, they might end up buying uh, agricultural products even cheaper. But here is the most ridiculous part of this. So Donald Trump, right, knowing that this is going to hurt U.S. farmers, his reaction is, oh, yeah, well, you know what? We're just going to buy the, the agricultural products ourselves. Right. The Trump is saying, and of course, he has to get Congress to go along with this asinine plan. But who knows? They probably will. Right. Because the farmers represent a big vote. But he's saying, hey, let's say the Chinese would buy 15 billion dollars worth of U.S. agriculture. Right. Well, Congress, the government will just pay the farmers the 15 billion dollars and we're going to buy the, the, the products. So in other words, we're just going to put the farmers on welfare. That's the solution. Instead of allowing the farmers to sell their products to willing buyers, the government's just going to buy up the products and give the farmers the money, right? Kind of like what we did during the Great Depression. I mean, it was a stupid policy then, and it's a stupid policy now. But it gets even more stupid when you find out what Trump is going to do with the, the products that the government buys. And of course, it's not the government, it's the taxpayers. Now, he's claiming that he's going to use the, the windfall from the tariffs, right? We're going to use the tariff money to buy the food from the farmers. Except where does the tariff money come from? The American consumers who are still buying the products that are subject to the tariffs. That's the only way the government collects the tariffs is if somebody buys the products that are subject to the tariff and then they pay the tax. So the money is coming from U.S. consumers. So they're going to take money from U.S. consumers who are paying taxes to buy Chinese products and they're going to give that money to U.S. farmers in exchange for their food. Right. So the taxpayer gets a double hand. Right. But then what Trump said he's going to do is he's going to give away all of the agricultural products that he is buying with taxpayer money. He's going to give that away to poorer countries. Now, what is that going to do? It's going to depress the price of global 
um, agriculture because he's just taking all this agriculture and he's dumping it on the markets, which means now when China goes to buy agricultural products after we do this, they're actually going to get a better deal. In fact, in many cases, these poor countries that get U.S. food for free, they'll just turn around and sell that same stuff for China. China will buy it cheaper, buying it from the places that get it from us for free than if they bought it from our farmers. But even if they don't get it from those countries, even if those poorer countries who are getting free food from the U.S. taxpayer, well, that means that they don't have to buy as much food on the open market, which again leads to lower prices for the Chinese. So this is a win-win for China. This is an asinine, this is a stupid policy, you know, and I, people are talking about it. Nobody, nobody in the mainstream media is bringing up any of these points. Everybody is completely clueless about how this is going to impact the American economy, the American consumer, American business. One interesting thing about the Chinese countermeasures is they went out of their way to say that even though they're going to be you know, boycotting U.S. agricultural products and imposing tariffs on a number of U.S. exports, I think 60 billion was the number they were banding about, but they specifically went out of their way to say that they were not going to apply the tariffs to U.S. oil, meaning that they're going to continue to allow the Chinese consumer to buy American oil without being subject to a tariff. Now, why did they do that? I think they realize that this will also put more negative pressure on the U.S. economy because it will keep oil prices rising. Because as long as the oil can be exported right, to the Chinese rather than left in the United States for Americans, uh, then it will keep oil prices moving higher, which will only hurt the U.S. economy that much more because of the impact that it will have on the consumer. If the Chinese boycotted U.S. energy products, then more energy would be available domestically, and that would act as a bit of a cushion uh, in the downturn because it would help Americans you know, buy cheaper energy, and it would kind of alleviate the upward price pressures that would come to bear on the U.S. economy from the tariffs. So I think this shows that the Chinese realize the Achilles heel of the U.S. economy is, in fact, inflation and rising prices, and they want to make sure that that happens by buying our energy. Now, you might say, well, why don't they do that with the food supply? And that's not nearly as important, I think, when it comes to the underlying economy as um as energy and of course i don't think that the boycotting of of uh, food would have as big an impact on the price of agriculture so i think they could do more harm to the economy by helping to drive energy prices up than by helping to drive food prices up also i think they realize it's a lot easier for american farmers to ramp up production of agriculture than it is for the oil industry to really substantially ramp up the production of crude you know, in addition to all these ridiculous tweets, you know, Donald Trump actually had a press conference to say a lot of this stuff, you know, in front of the reporters on television that he was tweeting out. And, you know, and one of the reasons that he actually has to come out now and try to defuse the bomb that he uh, that he set off is because even Larry Kudlow, right, his own economic advisor, was on the financial shows over the weekend, or I think it was Friday, his interview was on CNBC, rather. But he admitted reluctantly, 
reluctantly. You ought to watch the interview. I mean, he's squirming because he doesn't want to say it. But he admitted that the Chinese don't pay the tariffs. He admitted that American consumers pay the tariffs, right, which is the opposite of what Trump keeps on saying. The Chinese are being tariffed. The Chinese are going to have to pay the tariffs. No. Chinese don't pay the tariffs. Larry Kudlow admitted as much. Of course, it's obvious this is not rocket science. It's not that I'm so smart that I can figure this out. You'd have to be an idiot not to be able to figure it out. But anyway, so now Trump probably thought that he had to you know, address the elephant in the room now that everybody is pointing to the elephant. And so what Donald Trump said is, look, Americans don't have to pay these tariffs if they don't want to. Just don't buy the products. Well, duh. Well, then the government doesn't collect the tariffs. You know, he, he loves the fact that, you know, the U.S. government is getting all these tariffs. Well, he won't get the tariffs unless people buy the products that are subject to the tariffs and pay the tax. But he said, look, if you don't want to pay the tariffs, just don't buy the products or buy them from another country that is not uh, subject to the tariff. Well, if they do that, they're going to pay a higher price because let's say they're getting the lowest price from China. And now they can't buy from China. Well, they have to buy from another source, which has a higher price because they're probably buying from the lowest cost producer, right? Consumers are shopping around. If they can get cheaper stuff in Cambodia or Thailand, they would, they would be buying it from those countries. But if they're not, if they're buying from China, that means right now China is giving them the best deal. And if they stop buying from China, well, then they have to get the second best deal. And it may not be nearly as good as the best deal. But the funniest thing that Donald Trump is saying is that, well, we could just buy the stuff from ourselves. All we have to do is make it. And he said, if U.S. companies right, that import stuff from China, if you don't want to have to pay the tariffs and pass them on to your customers, just produce the stuff here. Make it ourselves. Which shows you, again, how little appreciation Donald Trump has for what is involved in what he is saying. You know, there's an old expression, easier said than done. And that certainly comes to mind here. Although one of the funniest things about this press conference is when he was describing this, right? He was talking about how all we have to do is make the stuff ourselves. He basically said, you know, once upon a time in America, you know, we used to make it ourselves. We used to manufacture. We didn't import stuff from other countries. In fact, we exported our surpluses. So, you know, back then, and he was about to say, when we had a really strong economy, and I, I could see him catching himself because he doesn't want to admit that the economy in the past was stronger than it is right now because he continues to say, in fact, in this very press conference, he said once again that we have the strongest economy in U.S. history. Okay, well, if we have the strongest economy in U.S. history, why are you lamenting about a bygone era? Why are you worried about the fact that we're no longer producing stuff if we now have an economy that's stronger than it was when we did produce stuff? So he kind of caught himself. And so instead of saying, this is what we used to do when we had a strong economy, he said, well, this is what we did when our economy was truly special. It was truly special. Well, what was so special about it? I mean, if we have a stronger economy now, what's so special about a weaker economy? I mean, the reality is it was special because it was actually strong. This economy isn't strong. It's a bubble. The fact that Donald Trump is pointing this out shows that he knows the economy isn't strong. The reason that we don't manufacture stuff anymore is because we have a weak economy. Our economy is too weak to manufacture stuff. It's a bubble. Trump knows this. He is just pretending that the economy is strong so he can take credit for it, so he can use it as a campaign issue to try to get a second term. And in addition to saying that we used to have a special economy, he said, we used to make this stuff ourselves back when we were smart. 
So we were smart in the past because we made the stuff ourselves. Well, that's an admission that we're dumb now, right? Because if it was smart to make it ourselves, now we're dumb because we're importing it. Well, it's not that we're dumb. We're just doing what we can to keep our economic heads above water because the Chinese have basically thrown us a life preserver, and that's why we haven't drowned. And Trump is basically throwing it back, and he thinks that we're going to swim. We are going down for the count. Because what happened is the big government, see, when Trump wants to go back to the good old days, and I want to go back there too, I just recognize it's a painful road uh, to, to do that. But what happened was the government got much, much bigger. We loaded ourselves up with big spending government programs and to finance them, we had to keep taxing and taxing our producers. And we kept boggling down with more and more regulation that kept driving up the cost. And we had labor unions driving up wage costs to the point that the only way we could survive was to start importing all the stuff that we used to produce. But the only way we were able to pay for it was because the world would accept our dollars, right? Because we are the issuer of the world's reserve currency. So that has been a gigantic subsidy, and the Chinese have paid a disproportionately large you know, part, borne a large part of that subsidy in propping up the U.S. economy. So we can still survive with all these taxes and all these regulations because we don't have to support the manufacturing infrastructure anymore because we can rely on the infrastructure of the rest of the world. And also, Americans used to save. When Trump go, reminisces about the times when we used to produce, that's because we used to save. We used to make capital investments. We don't do that anymore. We just borrow and spend. And where do we get the money that we're borrowing? From the Chinese and other nations that are doing the savings for us. So they're saving for us, they're producing for us, and we're living off of, of their productivity and their underconsumption. And that party, that global gravy train is about to come to an end. You know, Donald Trump was actually saying, oh, we've got the Chinese over a barrel here because, you know, we're the biggest customer. And, you know, without us, who are they going to sell to? We're just going to make the stuff ourselves. This is complete nonsense, right? I mean, think about a, a typical U.S. company that imports everything, right? That doesn't manufacture everything. Let's say Nike is just one example, right? They make uh, athletic shoes, right? Now, Nike imports, not everything is imported from China. I mean, they used to import a lot more from China. I think now their imports from China are maybe about 20%. But the rest of the stuff comes from, you know, Indonesia, uh, Taiwan, India, Thailand, I don't know, Pakistan, Vietnam, Malaysia, Philippines. I mean, you name it. There's a host of countries in Southeast Asia uh, that Nike is relying on. Now, Donald Trump said the best thing for U.S. companies to do would not be just to switch from China uh, to India, but to manufacture the stuff ourselves. He said that companies should just start new divisions and start manufacturing and, and just forget about the imports and then no big deal, right? Well, well, think about what would actually be involved in an undertaking like that, right? What exactly would Nike have to do in order to produce the shoes that it currently imports, right? Well, it's going to have to build factories in the United States, right, to, to, to make shoes. But not only is it going to have to build the factories, but it's going to have to buy the equipment, buy the machines that are required to assemble these shoes. But again, it's not just one thing. You need a whole supply chain. I mean, where are you going to get the rubber 
right? Where are you going to get the, the laces? I mean, where are you going to get all the materials that go into the shoes? We don't make any of that stuff either. So you have to put all these supply chains together. You've got to create this stuff from scratch. How long is that going to take? You're going to have to get government permits. You're going to have to get environmental impact studies. A lot of things are going to have to happen before Nike can transform itself from basically a retailer, an importer of shoes, uh, to a manufacturer and you know, go from the entire chain. And, of course, what about the workers? Where are they going to get the workers? They're going to have to train people to do all this work. This is going to cost a fortune. And how long is it going to take? for the United States to be able to do this. I don't know, five years, 10 years, maybe longer. What are they going to do in the meantime? They don't have any shoes. I mean, they're a shoe company, yet yet they're trying to you know create this whole process. And of course, why would they even spend that money? Because they have no idea how long the tariffs are going to be in effect. What if they get halfway finished building their factories out and then the tariffs are removed? Well, now what are they going to do? It's been a complete waste. And of course, where would they even get the money to do this, right? Nike is probably one of the typical companies. They probably have a share buyback program, right? The stock is trading at 33 times earnings, so it's an expensive stock. How would they get the money? Well, they'd have to stop buying back their own stock, number one. But number two, they would probably have to sell new shares. They'd have to raise billions of dollars in order to make the investments in the infrastructure and the training and the capital equipment in order to produce the products so that we could sell them. And so what would happen to Nike stock price? It would implode all this new stock for sale. And of course, because they're no longer importing shoes from China, their sales have collapsed. They have no profits. So now they're going to the market trying to sell stock and they have no profits anymore. I mean, who's going to buy? What's the price going to have to be? I mean, Donald Trump isn't thinking any of this through. He thinks it's so simple for us to replace the goods that the Chinese are making. Is he crazy? Yet he thinks the Chinese are going to have a big deal finding new customers. What do the Chinese have to do? They're making all these shoes, right? If we don't buy them, what do they have to do? Just slip on a pair. That's all they have to do. The only thing the Chinese have to do if they stop selling shoes to us is just put them on, wear them. You don't think they have feet in China? They have more people and more feet over there than we have here. I mean, the only made difference may be maybe they have smaller feet on average. So, you know, so maybe they'll make fewer size 12s and more size 8s. And that's even less material, so they'll save money there. So China is going to be better off. They can sell these shoes to other consumers, or they can wear the shoes themselves, right? That's the easy part. Trump has it backwards, right? Anybody can consume, right? The hard part is to produce, right? I mean, who has got the the difficult role in a family? The little kids who just consume whatever their parents give them, or the mother and the father who actually have to go to work and earn the money that the kids are spending, right? Trump doesn't understand this relationship that the United States has with China. In fact, one of the ironies of this whole thing, and this is, again, not just Trump. He's not the only one that's making this mistake, but pretty much everyone in the mainstream media, because a lot of people, when they heard about China, oh, China's going to dump our treasuries or stop buying treasuries, people don't think they they mean that. They think that's all a bluff, because they think that's actually going to hurt China. And the reason is they think that that would cause the dollar to fall and the Chinese currency to rise. And they think that that's a bad thing for China. No, no, that is a great thing for China, especially when they're in a trade war. Because 
if the Chinese are looking for a new market to replace the American consumer, right? If Chinese factories are making all these shoes, right, that they're no longer selling to America, well, they want their own citizens to have more purchasing power. So if the yuan goes up in value, that makes it easier for Chinese companies to sell to their own citizens than export to America, because now they can earn a higher dollar value for their production by selling domestically than selling internationally. So if you actually believe that a loss of exports to America represents a problem for China, well, then a stronger yuan is the solution to that problem. It's not going to exacerbate that problem. The loser, if China decides not to buy treasuries or to sell treasuries, the loser is the United States. Because now we have to borrow that money from somebody else who may be charging more than the Chinese or may not be willing to loan at all. Where is that money going to come from? I mean, it's not going to be available domestically. Remember, first of all, we're going to have to be devoting a massive amount of resources to building all these factories and training all these workers to make all this stuff that we no longer import. So if we're blowing through whatever capital we have to try to reindustrialize, where is the money going to come to finance the government, to to to, to uh, loan money with these massive um, deficits? And in fact, if we were to undergo the industrial transformation that Donald Trump wants us to go through, the depression that would result from that would be massive. I mean, now that would actually be some constructive pain, but it would be very painful and it would take a long time. In fact, it would go well beyond the next election and means, you know, Trump would lose and the Democrats would undo it with more taxes, more regulations and more government. But forget about that for a minute. If we were actually going to do this, right, Americans would have to stop spending, A, because we wouldn't be producing stuff. It's going to take a long time before we can build the factories in order to produce the stuff that we'd end up buying. So the consumer economy would implode, right? There'd be a lot of layoffs and unemployment in the service sector. Now, there might be some new jobs. There will be some new jobs in manufacturing, right? But it's going to take a long time to train those workers. And by the way, you know, if you look at a chart of manufacturing jobs, during you know the Obama administration and the Trump administration, and you look at a chart, you really can't tell where the Obama administration ends and the Trump administration begins. There is no material difference in the increase in manufacturing jobs uh, under this administration for all the hype and all the talk. Now, that would happen if we really were going to transform ourselves back into an industrial viable economy, then yes, we would have more jobs in manufacturing, but that would come at the expense of a lot of other jobs that would be destroyed as the whole bubble economy imploded. So what would happen to the U.S. budget deficit if we went into a massive recession in order to transform the economy from a service sector goods consuming economy to a savings and production economy, right? We would have this massive recession and that would mean that government spending would go way up government tax revenues would go way down. And so now all of a sudden the government would need all this capital to finance its expenditures. At the same time, the country needed all this capital to rebuild and reindustrialize. So talk about massive crowding out. It's There's not enough to go around. And so now everything would be based on the Fed, right? The Fed is going to be stepping up to the plate to buy up all these deficits. And now not only are we going to have prices rising as a result of the tariffs, right? And as a result of a, a smaller supply of imports, but now we have all this money that's being created that is causing uh, prices to rise. Plus, of course, 
at the same time that this is happening, the U.S. dollar is losing its status as the reserve currency. Countries are no longer striving uh, to import dollars, right? Because that's all that China was earning as a result of all of its efforts, all of its limited resources that were being expended to produce goods. They sent those goods to America in exchange for our dollars. So the Chinese got our dollars and we got their stuff. But if they don't want our dollars anymore because they're sinking in price, if they don't want to use our dollars to invest in our stocks and our bonds because the markets are crashing, we have a massive recession, we have runaway inflation, uh, then at the same time we're printing all this money to finance our deficits, all the money we already printed and sent abroad to finance decades of deficits is coming back to the U.S. at the same time, bidding up the price of everything that's not nailed down. So this is a Armageddon-type scenario. And this is where we're headed. Right? I mean, we are marching into battle. I mean, we're like Custer, right? And we have no idea that all these Indians are about to descend on us. Like, we know we, we're marching in there, and we probably have our drums, and we have American flags, and we got a guy playing, uh, uh, you know, a, a pipe or something. And, you know, everything is great. And we're marching right into this valley, and we're about to be killed by all these Indians. I mean, this is going to be a complete massacre, and nobody sees it, right? Everybody is so convinced that we're going to win, right? Bring it on, you know, no problem. You know, I hear people talking about, oh, the Chinese can't compete with us. I mean, we we import so much more stuff than they do. They can't go tariff for tariff with us because, I mean, we they're going to put tariffs, what, on $60 billion and we could do two or $300 billion? That doesn't mean that we have more weapons in the trade war. The tariffs are your weapons turned on your own troops, it's Americans who suffer the most from those tariffs. We can't win a war by killing more of our own troops than our enemies. And the biggest part of this whole thing is that China has so much to gain and America has so much to lose, at least in the short run. And the problem is, though, the short run is very important because we're never going to get to the long run, right? In the short run, we need to pop the bubble economy so we can replace it with a real one. The problem is, it's going to be interrupted. Whatever happens will be interrupted in 2021 by the socialists because we're going to be in such a disaster. This economy is going to be such a mess. I mean, we're going to be longing for the good old days of the 2008 financial crisis, right? Because, you know, people are going to be looking back at the Great Recession as if it was the roaring 20s when we're in the 20s, right? You know, we're almost at the 2020s and they're not going to be roaring at all. They're going to be more like the 1930s, except worse, because we're going to have inflation instead of deflation. So when all this bad stuff happens, we're not going to get to the promised land. It's not going to be short-term pain for long-term gain. We're going to get short-term pain, and then we're going to get even more pain after the next election when it's all blamed on capitalism and we go all in on socialism. Now, remember, too, one commentator in particular on CNBC was when they were talking about the Chinese supposed threat to sell our treasuries. They, the, the person said, well, good luck with weakening your currency if you try to sell your treasuries, because selling your treasuries is going to strengthen your currency, which is precisely the point. That's another reason to do it. I mean, selling treasuries is a twofer for China. They win twice. One, they get to unload treasuries. I mean, what's so good about treasuries? I mean, what are they yielding next to nothing? I mean, the sooner they can get rid of their treasuries, the sooner they're going to avoid massive losses. People that hold treasuries are going to be the bag holders. So getting out of treasuries is a good thing. But then there's a second good thing about getting out of treasuries because you strengthen your currency and you weaken the dollar, which is exactly what they want, right? If you want to develop your domestic economy, if you want to be able to consume more yourself rather than export to America, well, you need a stronger currency. The stronger the Chinese currency goes, 
the more Chinese savings are worth, the more Chinese wages are worth, right? And so they buy more stuff. On the flip side, Americans are broke. We're too, we can't afford stuff anymore, right? So all this stuff that Americans were enjoying, well, now that stuff is enjoyed by the Chinese. I mean, how are the Chinese losing by keeping their stuff? The only thing they lose is dollars. And those dollars are made of paper. Anybody can print money. Yes, not anybody can print the reserve currency, but when the dollar crashes and loses its reserve status, what good is the dollar? It's no different than any other paper currency. Any government could just crank up a printing press. That's an easy thing. The hard part is to crank up production because you can't just crank that up out of thin air. As I said earlier with the Nike example, you want to produce something, it takes a lot of savings and capital investment and training. It's hard to do. That's why we're not doing it. We've taken the easy way. We've been able to enjoy all this production without having to produce, right? We're enjoying the easy part, right? Without having to endure any of the hard part. I mean, what about all the pollution? that goes along and you know with with in the production process right i mean we don't have to do anything hey let the chinese produce all that stuff and just ship it over here right we don't care so all this is going to change the entire uh, economy is going to be transformed but as i said the transformation is going to cut short you know had trump leveled with the american public early on and basically said look We've had a bubble economy for decades. We've, been, uh, we've had an artificial economy based on cheap money, artificially low interest rates that have sustained massive trade deficits and massive budget deficits. We've been building up government as we've been uh, you know, cannibalizing our infrastructure. We've been deindustrializing. We're a shadow of our former self. The country is a mess. And I am the guy to fix this. I am the one who is going to force feed the bad tasting medicine down the throat of this economy. And it's going to be painful. It's going to be rough. But at the end of the rainbow, right, and it's a long journey, we are going to go back to our roots. We are going to once again be this special economy, this smart economy. That's the future. But we're not going to get to that destination anymore because of the false promises that he's already made, because he's claiming how great everything is. He's taking credit for things that he hasn't actually accomplished, and that means it's all going to get blamed on him. It's all going to get blamed on capitalism. It's going to get blamed on the Republicans. And we're just seeing a small taste of it. The markets haven't even begun to factor in how bad this is going to be. I mean, some people are still saying, well, I guess this takes those rate hikes that we were worried about off the table. Remember, because um, Powell kind of put hikes back on the table by saying that the low inflation was transitory, although tariffs are going to show that it's not transitory or prove that it's not transitory. And in fact, it's going to add to the inflation fire. And if we do get a weakening dollar, which we will get as soon as people figure out what this actually means, we're going to get higher inflation. Now, the Fed should be raising rates if we get a breakout of inflation, but they won't because they know they can't. And that's what the markets haven't figured out yet. So this time we're going to get stagflation. We're going to get recession and we're going to get inflation at the same time. And what the markets still don't understand is when the Fed goes back to the drawing board with more quantitative easing and 0% interest rates. And like I said last week in the podcast, their new plan where they put the trial balloons out last week is to target 
a level of interest rates, an artificially low level of interest rates that they think is going to help the economy. The economy is sick because of artificially low interest rates. So keeping them even lower for longer is not going to create a healthy economy, right? If you have a drug addict, you don't say, well, we just need more drugs. We just need a bigger supply of the drugs he's addicted to. No, what we need is to go cold turkey on those drugs. What we need is higher interest rates. The longer the Fed tries to put out this fire with gasoline of low interest rates, the bigger the fire is going to burn. But what the markets still haven't figured out is the next time it's going to burn it to a cinder. Because when they try quantitative easing again, when they try 0% interest rates again, it's not going to be the stock market that's going to go up. It's not going to be the bond market. It's not going to be the real estate market. It's going to be food prices. It's going to be energy prices. It's going to be consumer prices that go up, commodity prices that go up, gold prices that go up, things like that. Foreign stocks will go up, not uh, U.S. assets. And this is going to be the last hurrah. This is going to be the overdose of stimulus. And again, if the markets even had a clue that this was about to happen, you, you would be seeing much bigger movements in the stock market than what we had today, much, much bigger movements in the foreign exchange markets. The dollar would be decisively lower. Instead, it was up against some currencies, down against the yen and the Swiss franc, uh, the safer haven currencies, but kind of up against more economically cyclical currencies. It should be falling against those currencies. Yes, gold was up a little bit, uh, but it was not up a lot. You know, the only thing that's really moving right now is Bitcoin. And I know a lot of people are going to get really excited about this. They're, oh, we told you so, Peter. You see, you see, you were wrong. Bitcoin is about $8,000, $8,000. Remember, the low uh, was down around 3000 last year. So we've had this huge move. I think the price has at least doubled this year because I, I think we probably started the year around 4000 maybe even lower than 4000 I can't remember. But we've at least, let's say, doubled. And a lot of those gains have happened over the last week, week and a half. I mean, we just keep on moving higher and higher. And people are saying, you see, see, Bitcoin is the new gold, right? Bitcoin is going up. Gold's not going anywhere. This proves it, right? And everybody is saying that. In fact, I even uh, heard somebody, Art Cashin, on uh, CNBC was uh, this morning was postulating that the reason that Bitcoin was rising right now was because money was coming out of China, that it was Chinese buying. Chinese citizens were getting worried about their currency losing value, capital controls. And so they're panicking and they are buying Bitcoin. I don't think that's happening at all. Right? If you just look at a uh, Google uh, trends, right? Just look at uh, trends and type in Bitcoin as a search term and just take a look. There is a small increase uh, in searches over the last couple of weeks over where it was like a week ago, but the searches are still lower than where it was a month ago or a few months ago. And it's nowhere near where it was. I mean, look at a chart of five years. I mean, you can barely tell the difference on that chart between how much interest there is in Bitcoin today versus how much there was in 2014 or 2015, you know, before that huge run-up in, in 2017. So if there's not a lot of people around the world suddenly becoming interested in Bitcoin, where's the buying coming from? It's not coming from new adoption. That's not happening. The buying is coming from the people who already own Bitcoin. That's who buying it, people who already own it. There are no real new buyers. I'm sure there's some, but as a percentage of the buying that's going on, it's probably very small. 
that means the rally is unsustainable. You need new people to come into the Ponzi scheme to keep it going. They're not getting new adopters. That's not happening. Now, maybe there's a goal. If we can just push the price up high enough, right, then the high price will attract buying. It'll attract more media attention, right? Maybe, but, you know, I think it will also attract a lot of supply. There's still a lot of people that bought Bitcoin at 10000 15000 near 20000 And as the price gets higher, these guys have a get-out-of-jail-free. They're going to try to sell to get their money back. So you're going to start to run into a lot more of the people who are selling as they get even. Then you're going to find a bunch of new buyers who are willing to step up to the plate. I think that a lot of this is pure manipulation. I think a lot of the people who are buying are buying from their own wallets, right? You have big whales that have multiple wallets and they sell in one and buy in another. So there's no real buying. They're just moving their own money around and their own Bitcoin around. In fact, I think you have a concerted effort. And I think a lot of it is around this campaign, right? This uh, drop gold campaign to really push up the price of Bitcoin. Uh, and you can see that Bitcoin's price is rising not only in you know absolute terms, but relative to the other cryptocurrencies. I saw the, the, the total market share get back up to about 59%, which is about as high as it's been. I don't think we've had hit 60 in a long time on uh, what percentage of total market cap. So the buying is being concentrated in Bitcoin, although other cryptos are going along for the ride. But I think this is a concerted effort to try to get the price up. I think a lot of shorts have been burned. I think a lot of the buying has come from short covering, uh, at least in the futures market, right? So that's been happening. So they've managed to squeeze the shorts. But look at the extent of this move. We have had a enormous move in price on no news, right? There's been no fundamental news that has changed the landscape. I mean, this uh, campaign of drop gold, I mean, that's not news, right? That That's not any kind of positive development in, in the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem. That's just some guy deciding to spend some money on some advertising. So this is all manipulation. The fact that the price of Bitcoin can move up so fast proves that it can go down just as fast is not faster. And that's exactly what it's going to do, which is why it is nothing like gold. I mean, gold doesn't behave that irrationally. And in fact, if somebody's going to say, well, this is because people are losing confidence in the dollar. No, they're not. The dollar didn't go down today, right? The dollar index itself was relatively flat. I mean, it was actually, no, now it's up. I'm looking at now it's up four, four cents, 97.37. I mean, it was down most of the day, but it's relatively flat. Nobody is losing confidence in the dollar yet. They will. So a loss of confidence in the dollar is not why people are buying Bitcoin. I mean, gold was only up 12 bucks today. If people were losing confidence in the dollar, gold would be going up a lot more than 12 bucks. Now, maybe people could say, well, they're losing confidence in the euro or the yen. Well, if they were, they'd be buying the dollar probably, right? That's what they would be doing. That would be where most money would be going if they were just losing confidence in one currency, but not losing confidence in the dollar. So in order to have a big movement into crypto, you'd have to have people losing confidence in fiat money in general and thinking that Bitcoin is a more attractive alternative. That's not what they're doing. And in fact, I think the main catalyst for Bitcoin going up as much as it is, apart from the manipulation, is the fact that the manipulators can point to the fact that gold isn't moving very much, right? Because there isn't a real loss of confidence yet. And so that's why gold is not moving. And people can say, look, see, this is the new gold. Bitcoin is better than gold because, see, Bitcoin is responding to all these problems and gold is not. 
Well, Bitcoin isn't responding to the problems because the people don't even realize there's a problem that these are response. That is what's going on. When people wake up, when people actually recognize the truth, right, the things that I've been saying, and it's not being said anywhere. I mean, people who are reading my Twitter, Twitter stuff today understand more about the U.S. economy and about what's going to happen as a result of this trade war than anybody who is getting their information from the conventional media because everybody's reading from the same playbook and it's all wrong. Nobody really understands this. I mean, there are some people that criticize the president a little bit, but nobody really gets the, the, the understands the situation and the ramifications of, of this change and what it means for America, what it means for China, what it means for the world. But if this was happening, and it will happen, and when it does happen, then you're going to see a big movement up in the price of gold. But you're not going to see a big movement up in the price of Bitcoin because Bitcoin's rise and fall has nothing to do with that, right? It's just are people buying it or are people selling it? And ultimately, it's going to collapse. And when the price of gold starts to go up, that is going to undermine the argument that Bitcoin is a better safe haven than gold because when people are truly seeking out a safe haven, they will buy gold. Nobody is buying Bitcoin because they think it's a safe haven. Anybody who buys it today after the price has basically just doubled is not buying a safe haven. They know they're buying a highly speculative asset and they're only buying it because they're speculating that the price is going to keep rising. And why would the price keep rising? Because some other idiot buys it at a higher price thinking it's going to keep rising and thinking he's going to find an even greater fool who's going to buy it at an even higher price. But as I said on the last podcast, eventually you run out of fools and you're the last one left holding back. Now, just because more fools have showed up, you can say, hey, Peter, you were talking like this last week and Bitcoin was 5,000, then it was 6,000, and now it's 8,000, and maybe it's going to 9,000 or 10,000, or who knows where the peak of this rally is going to be. But the fact that Bitcoin is rallying doesn't disprove anything that I am saying about the underlying nature of Bitcoin or where it's ultimately headed. This thing is a bubble and it is highly manipulated. And I have no idea to what extent uh, the people who are manipulating it can drive this price higher before the fundamentals ultimately cause it to collapse. And if you think that you can time the market and get in and out and make a profit on the way up before the bottom drops out, that's up to you, right? I'm not, and I'm not encouraging anybody to do that. In fact, anybody who made that decision, anybody who bought into Bitcoin at four or 5,000, I mean, at 8,000, you should be selling. I mean, you should be taking profits, you know? I mean, obviously, uh, but most people are not doing that. That's why the price hasn't gone down. Right? Most people are holding and hoping. Most people are hodlers. But then again, most people aren't even buying. They're just moving the currency from one wallet to another, and they're doing it at higher and higher prices. They are spoofing the markets. They are manipulating the tape in order to create a higher price. And the hope is that this higher price will bring in real new buying so that they can dump. Right? It's a pump and dump. And they're pumping the market up now, and they're going to dump it. And what you don't want to do is be the dumpy. You don't want to buy after the pump and left, get left holding the bag when the early money dumps. No sooner had I finished recording this podcast that I read an article on the Monsanto buyer um, cancer cases. So I figured I would include this bonus material in today's podcast because the story just broke. And I had been talking about 
these trials on this podcast, in part because we do own shares of Bayer, which uh, purchased Monsanto, and obviously they regret the purchase because they're now subject to the whims of runaway U.S. juries. And now a third jury has awarded a uh, enormous award to a Northern California couple who claim that they both developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma because they also used Roundup for the past 30 years, which contains glyphosate, which is the ingredient that the World Health Organization said is a probable carcinogen. Now, of course, the World Health Organization, which was paid by the trial lawyers to come out with that statement, is the only uh, basically organization anywhere that has made that statement. In fact, the FDA just last month came out and reiterated the fact that it believes that glyphosate is safe and does not cause cancer when it is used the way it's supposed to be used. And in fact, there are no studies. There is not a single study uh, that shows that uh, glyphosate, the ingredient in Roundup, causes cancer. Not even the World uh, Health Organization. They have not done a study that shows it. All they've said is that it probably causes cancer, just like they said that red meat probably causes cancer, and all sorts of things they claim probably cause cancer. Well, this is thrown in there. But anyway, the jury awarded this elderly couple $55 million in compensatory damage and then $2 billion in punitive damages. Now, the the uh, the lawyers for the plaintiffs, they only asked for $1 billion in punitive damages, which is crazy in and of itself. But the jury came back with an even crazier $2 billion. In fact, I think one of the guys on the jury was like an avid environmentalist. I think they were able to find out from social media he was really against pesticides. Uh, this guy was on the jury. They tried to have him removed because of that bias, and they were not able to do that. But obviously, this has nothing to do with the facts and the evidence, because all the facts and the evidence would show that these two elderly people developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for reasons having nothing to do uh, with the fact that they happen to use Roundup. Now, some people might say, wait a minute, if they both have it, well, well, that's kind of a crazy coincidence, right? It can't be a coincidence. I mean, they must have both gotten it because of Roundup. That's not true. At all. In fact, I think the fact that they both got it is actually more evidence that Roundup didn't cause it. Because if it was so easy to get cancer that both people in the household would develop it, you would have an epidemic of non Hodgkin's lymphoma. I mean, there is so many people, there are so many people utilizing not only Roundup, but other pesticides that also uh, contain glyphosate. And we have not seen a major rise in the incidence of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma since the introduction of this pesticide. I mean, it was so easy. All these people who are suing who have it, well, their spouses would have it too, but they don't. Only one person has it. This is very rare that you have both people in the same household developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And because it's so rare among households that actually use Roundup, that is more evidence that it's not the Roundup. Maybe there's something else that these people have in common that is the reason that they have cancer. Well, one of the reasons is that they're old, right? When you're in your 70s, you know, and you develop, you know, you're more likely to develop cancer as you get older. Now, they're both in remission. So neither of them have it now. They're in remission. 
but they're not in good health. They're in terrible health. First of all, they have family histories with a lot of cancer. That's an elevated risk factor, but they both have other skin problems, skin diseases. The guy, I think it was the guy, he had skin cancer like six or seven times throughout his life. And that's also an elevated risk for developing non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So you have two elderly infirm people with histories of cancer in the family who have all sorts of other diseases who are otherwise not very healthy people. And then, you know, they live this non-healthy lifestyle. They have a history of cancer and they happen to develop cancer, you know, as they're older. Okay, that's why they have it. They don't have it because of... Uh, using this pesticide in their gardens, right? This is all concocted. This is an example of a runaway jury system. Remember, these jurors are like the voters, right? That's why we're going to end up with socialism, because you have a bunch of socialists that are simply trying to redistribute money from the shareholders of Bayer uh, to these individuals who they think are more deserving, and they want to punish capitalism. And this is their chance to do it. They're sitting on a jury and they want to put out this punishment. But you know what? The fact is that sales of Roundup are up 20% year over year, right? Despite all this stuff about Roundup causing cancer, more people are buying it. I mean, do people actually think it causes cancer? And if they think it causes cancer, why are they buying it? You know, one of the reasons that more people are probably buying Roundup right now is because in case they get cancer, they want to be able to blame it on the Roundup because that's their ticket to millions or billions of dollars, right? All you have to do if you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, although, I, you know, maybe they can throw in some other cancers eventually, just blame it on Roundup. And some idiotic U.S. jury is going to be dumb enough to give you the award. That might be one of the reasons that the sales of Roundup are, are rising so much. But again, I think the key is not going to be these ridiculous jury awards. The key is going to be what happens on appeal because the judges are going to be much more objective and they're going to look at the evidence or rather the lack thereof and they're going to conclude that these verdicts are completely at odds with the facts of the case. That the plaintiffs did not produce one single shred of evidence that actually linked um, glyphosate to cancer in humans. And if they can't show at least some evidence, some proof, some study, and then you have a mountain of evidence that actually says the opposite, that it's safe, that it doesn't cause cancer, then the jury awards are completely at odds with the evidence of the case. The jury completely ignored the facts, and they came up with a, with a decision completely at odds uh, with the facts. And when that happens, it's up to the judge to set aside the verdict. That is what the judge is supposed to do, and hopefully that's what any judge will do. 